we've been going through Luke, but we're going to depart from Luke for today for a special reason that I'm about to explain. But it also, one of the reasons is it gives you more time to finish reading the book of Luke, you know, because we're not actually at this point, we're just going through the beginning of it, but we've encouraged you to read the book of Luke. How many have read through it? How many have read through it? Yeah, we've got a couple people. Well, okay, we got kids. Hi. Okay. Last, okay, now maybe she's a speed reader, but last service, no, but last service, Marnie said she read through it in an hour and, and 15 minutes. 16 minutes, I think she said. So, but that's our fastest person so far. But sometimes you want to take your time to read it and absorb it. You know how that is. Um, but anyway, go ahead and read through it. You've got an extra week now here. As we go into something a little bit different today, I want to take you back in history. I want to take you back to o- October 31st. Well, not, not just a few days ago, not Halloween. But I want to go way back, October 31st, 1517. And I want you to transport yourself in your mind to a medieval village, to a muddy town square in Wittenberg. It was spelled, spelled with a W, but pronounced with a, I like a V because they can't pronounce their W's in Germany. And this is in East Germany. And you hear pounding on the wall at this big castle church, they call it. And, you, and it's actually a pounding on the door. And a man is pounding a hammer against a nail and he's doing something against the door and you look over and he's a large man and his features are somewhat emaciated because he doesn't eat properly. So he has big bones sticking out and he, he's pounding on this door and he, he has an old cloak on and you look at him and his hair, he's bald, but he just has like a tuft of hair on. So you recognize that this guy is an Augustinian monk. And you go over to see what he was pounding on the door and it's, it's a paper and the paper says 95 theses. Now, 95 Theses is going to change the world. So is this man. And his name is Martinus Luther. But we would call him Martin Luther. And we say, so what about Martin Luther? Well, he's a pretty influential guy. In fact, if it wasn't for him, uh, Martin Luther King wouldn't have a name. (laughs) Because actually, that's how he got his name. He was actually, Michael King was actually his name. And he and his father changed their names because his father was so enamored with the writings and life of Martin Luther. We talked about the man who's had more written about him than any man in history, and that was Jesus Christ. But you know who else had the most written about him, who's second on the list? Martin Luther is. And many in this room know very little about him, and it's scary because we're not teaching that much about him anymore, but we can learn from the people, not just in the Bible, but the people that God used afterwards. And so we're going to take a a look at his life today. In fact, we wouldn't be here probably if it wasn't for him. We're going to learn a little bit about that too. But what I want us to look at his life for today is something else because his life was a life of courage. And as I looked at that, I felt this is an illustration of courage for us. We live in a time, I hate to say it, but I think we live in a time of cowardism. I've never seen so much fear in my lifetime as I have the last few years. People are afraid to say anything. They're afraid to say boo. They're afraid they might get sued or somebody might look at them crossroads and they might get in in trouble of some sort. And even as Christ followers, we need to have courage for what we believe in. And Martin Luther is a good example of that. So we're going to look at his life as an illustration of courage today um, as we celebrate really October 31st being what's called Reformation Day by many people in the Christian church. So, here we go. We'll start off and we'll say that the first thing that we see with courage is that courage cannot stand alone. Do you know that? Remember, remember Peter, he tried to have courage, but he couldn't have courage by himself. 
Without God's power enabling him, he wasn't able to have the courage to follow Jesus the way he should. Courage cannot stand alone. We need the supernatural power of God to help us have true courage. Or if, if our courage is just built on us getting ourselves, you know, kind of worked up, eventually it, it falls apart. Martin Luther wasn't born with courage. In fact, he was probably sort of a fearful person growing up. He was born in 1483, the oldest of a large peasant family in Saxony, this little kingdom. Um, and, you know, he, he, one, probably the most significant thing that we remember is nine years into his life, in 1492, what happened? Columbus sailed the ocean blue, remember? He probably didn't know anything about that. He lived in a harsh, violent, and somewhat isolated place. And, uh, you know, people, they'd have a drought like we do, and farmers would lose their land. They didn't have any assistance from anybody. They'd lose their land, they'd become beggars, they'd become angry, and they would, they would band together, and they'd go in, and they'd pillage towns, and there'd be fighting. And there was the plague, stalking people's lives. It was a time of death. And there was a lot of confusion in terms of leadership. There was all these different clans and all these different little kingdoms all over Europe. And they were held together in a loose coalition called the Holy Roman Empire. And you had an emperor and you had the pope who represented the church at the time. There was only one church in the West. That was the Roman Catholic Church. Catholic, does anybody know what Catholic means? It basically means all-inclusive or international. And Roman means that it was in Rome. So it's the international church with its headquarters in Rome. It was very different than it is today. At that point in that world, they were kind of co-leading with the government. And there was a lot of confusion. And in order to lead the peasants, and most of us would have been peasants, most people were peasants, peasants were illiterate for the most part. They couldn't read. And even those that read couldn't read Latin unless you had went through advanced training. And so the Bible was only available in... Latin. So only the popes could read it. Only the pope and all, only the past priests could read it. And so only the educated people had that available to them. Only the wealthy had that available to them. And everybody else was controlled by that because they didn't know what it said. What a world that would have been like. And so he lived in this kind of dark and, and unfair world in this confusing place. And people were not getting the message of the Bible. Can you imagine not having a Bible in your home? Could you imagine not being able to read one if it was placed before you? And you were completely dependent on the priest to tell you what was right and what was wrong. They were barbaric. Luther and his family still believed in gnomes and in um, elves and in all these little supernatural creatures and stuff because of the, they were very superstitious from their background, from their pagan background. So there was a lot of confusion. This is the setting for the situation that we have before us. Now, Luther's father was a copper miner, and what he did is he bought some copper mines, and he was able to pull his family out of peasantry into sort of a middle-class position. He noticed his oldest son was quite brilliant. He, he decided to get him education, see if he could become a lawyer, and that way he could pay for him when he retired. And so Luther did well. He got his master's degree and he was working on his law degree and his dad joined the AARP um, and he was, he was looking into a vacation in Hawaii and then everything went south. On July 2nd, uh, 1505, Luther was, was walking across a big open field and there was a thunder and lightning storm. A friend of his had recently been struck by lightning and killed. And Luther saw the lightning all around him and he became very frightened and he ran. And he fell to the ground and he shouted out, um, help me, St. Anne, I'll become a monk. St. Anne was the matron saint of the miners. 
And so he said, I'll become a monk if you want me to become a monk. And biographers have looked back and said, there must have been something stirring. You know, you don't just make that decision. And probably the truth was, is he was very frightened of God. And that comes across. He was not a man of courage. He was a man of fear. He thought that God was angry with him and that he could never do enough to please him. He could never be a righteous and good man. And so he just kept thinking, I've got to try something. I've got to try something to please him. And so he became a monk. And so he became the most intellectual of the monasteries were the Augustinian monks, from which Augustine was the first. And we studied about him a little bit last year. We talked about him. So he becomes an Augustinian monk. And, um, and he starts beating himself up and stuff because he wants to please God. He never feels like he's good enough for God. So he prays, tries to pray all the time. He fasts. He doesn't eat for weeks. He doesn't sleep with a blanket in the cold. Um, he, he whips himself when he does bad things. He throws himself against the wall to punish himself for not being good enough for God. He said this about himself. He said, I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. But he couldn't do it. In 1510, he was sent to Rome on a mission. And when he got there, he found out that the, pa- the priests there were immoral, that they were uh, incompetent, and that they were raising all sorts of money for this cathedral the St. Peter's Cathedral and taking money from the people, from you guys, from the peasants. And then for their own luxury, they would use a lot of extra money. And it bothered him. And then he felt upset that it was bothering him. And he felt guilty. Have you ever felt guilty like that? You feel like I'm not good enough for you, God? And so he just kept beating himself up. So he went and he talked to his superior, Johann von Stoppitz, every day, all day long, it seems like he would be going in and confessing his sins and telling him how God was angry with him. God was angry with him. God was angry with him. Finally, Johann von Stoppitz said this about him. He said, God is not angry with you. You are angry with God. Don't you know that God commands you to hope? And so Johann von Stoppitz told him to stop it. Okay. And he later said, this about him. He said, if it had not been for Dr. Stoppitz, I should have sunk in hell and called him my most beloved uh, father in Christ. And they talked these deep theological conversations. He realized Martin was brilliant. He tried to help him understand that God loved him and that God wasn't a mean God and that there was hope. And he talked to him about this and Luther um, listened to him and then Stoppitz thought, I've got to get him a Bible. This guy is so brilliant. I'll get him to teach and studied the Bible. And so he was able to get him a position as a professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg. That's where we started today. And that's how he got there. He got there as a professor at this new university that was just getting started. Um, Prince Frederick III, also called Frederick the Wise, was the elector, kind of like the king of Saxony. And this is his new project. And he was really excited about Martin because he was a very good communicator and he really did well in his studies. And he was learning all this stuff about God. Imagine what it was like to have a Bible in his hand for the first time, be able to really study it and read it and look at it and translate it and understand it and see what it was really saying. See, we take that for granted. I think that must have been years ago it was like that. No, not really that long ago. Not if you live in a Soviet bloc country. It wasn't that long ago that for 70 years during the Cold War, people were not allowed to have Bibles for the most part. That's pretty recent history. It comes and goes in nations all over. There are places like that even today. So that was his situation. Even though they were saying they were following God, they had gotten away from the Bible. So Luther starts reading it and he starts seeing, hey, the church is not doing what the Bible says. Would that bother you? I mean, that's why you guys should be holding us accountable too. The church is not doing what the Bible says. It's going in a different direction. They had these things that bothered Luther so much called indulgences. 
indulgences were these. They said that when a person died, they went to a place, this Bible doesn't talk about this, a place called purgatory, and that only, only the, the Pope could sometimes get them into heaven if he wanted to. But other, and some people went to heaven, but most people went to purgatory. So when your loved one dies, they go to purgatory and they're suffering. And you don't want them to go to hell. You want them to go to heaven. So if you would pay money to the church, that would be such a wonderful deed on your part that God would maybe help them get out of purgatory sooner. And so the illiterate peasants were paying money that they didn't have so that the wealthy priests and you know, ruling classes could have more. And they came to the next town to do one of these indulgences programs. It was like going to Escalon, and Luther heard about it. And there was this guy named Johann von Tetzel, and he was a master salesman. And he would go in, and he would set a stage up, and then he would have a play about heaven and hell. He'd get everybody all worked up and everybody all upset, and then at the end he would say this, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And Luther thought that was absolutely horrible. And so what he did was actually very common. He went to the the door of the church, which was kind of like a bulletin board, and he just put up the 95 Theses, which was to say, I'm a professor and I want to debate any other professors who would like to talk about this topic. Now, if you're going to have a debate and you're going to challenge people to a debate, you need to have close to 100 Theses. So he wrote 95. Not a big deal. The big deal was is that it was written very eloquently and very boldly. Um, One of the things he said, for example, was, I may say that if, oh, he said, um, he said, why does not the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of holy love? Well, this is something that people thought about before, but nobody had the guts to really say it. And he says it. Now, it would have just died out, but this is what happens. The Gutenberg press was just invented. Can you imagine They never had, you know, how we have electronic things we can get back and forth to each other. They didn't even have a printing press. So they finally get a printing press, and they send this out to thousands of people. And people that can read are reading it to those that can't in the open, you know, in the town squares. And everybody goes nuts. He becomes a celebrity overnight. The poor peasants are saying, this guy's one of us. And he's risen to a point of prominence, and he's fighting out against what's wrong. He's telling us the truth. And, of course, the church is irate. But... Fortunately and providentially for Luther, the church and the state are having so much problems, it takes about five years for them to resolve all of this. So Luther, between that time and, and, 18, um, and 14, 20, uh, as, what is it, 14, 20, or 15, uh, 21, he has time to work through what he believes in. And he, he does do some debating, and he does writings, and he does studies in the Bible. And the more he does so, the more his mind begins to grasp what God is saying in the Bible. Because he's learning it right from the Bible. And the book that really blows his mind is he starts studying Romans. And as he's studying Romans, he keeps thinking, I cannot be right before God. This is why it's so important to study the Bibles for ourselves. I can't be right before God, but this book is saying something different. And he's blown away specifically by one verse. Romans chapter 1, verse 17 says, for, for in the gospel, that means the teachings of Jesus and Jesus' life, a righteousness from God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And, and Luther writes in his autobiography, he says, after meditating on this day and night, I began to understand that the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt as if I were born again and had entered paradise itself through gates that had been flung open. And he quotes from John 3. 
What Luther is saying is he thought that he had to do something to earn a right to get into heaven. And that he realizes now that what Jesus' message is, is God has made it, made us righteous in him because Jesus died on the cross for us. So that if we just receive Jesus, if we surrender to Jesus and receive him as our Lord and Savior, then we get in. That's how we come into a relationship with God. It's not about what we do. It's about who we are in relationship to him. And that message had been put on the shelf as it is periodically throughout history. And when that message came back, it changed the world. It radically changed Luther. And he suddenly had amazing courage to stand up for what he believed in because he knew that everything he said was coming right from the Bible and from God. And so he would just write what the Bible was saying. And he began writing with great fluidity and clarity and with humor and insight that people had never heard before. And people got really excited about what he was writing. And even knights were writing him and saying, we'll, we'll protect you against the emperor and the, and the church. Um, and the church was getting more upset until finally Pope Leo X wrote a letter basically to everybody saying that Luther was a wild bull in the Lord's vineyard and needed to recant of everything he said and get his life right, and he had 60 days to do it. And Luther wouldn't do it. So they burned Luther's books. They started burning his books. So you know what Luther did? He publicly burned the Pope's letter, which was crazy, but he, was just, he knew he was doing the right thing. And so God gave him that kind of courage. Now, how about you? Where are you at in your relationship with God? Or do you know God? Sometimes I talk to people and they say, well, I think I'm getting to heaven because I'm a good person. And, I, and they list all the things they've done. But the truth is, none of us are good people next to God. And none of us deserve to enter into his holy heaven. The thing that makes that possible for us is that Jesus died on a cross for us and rose from the grave. And the only way in is to surrender and just basically give your life to him. If you haven't done that, I encourage you to come and talk to me today. Send me an email. Call me up. I'm always available to have that conversation with you. And we'd love to see you enter into his, uh, his kingdom. But if you've come to know Christ, and this is what bothers me sometimes, is I think we come to know Christ and we still live as if we didn't know him. We're trying to impress him all the time. And we keep thinking, if I do this or that, you know, it, it, our life becomes all about all the things we do. Uh, some of the most immature Christians are sometimes the ones that sign up to do everything because they think that by doing so, they'll somehow impress everybody and impress God. God is most pleased when we spend time, I think, just reading our Bibles and praying and talking to him and listening to him and enjoying him throughout our life and encouraging those people that he places around us. Uh, and doing step by step the things that he reveals to us. God doesn't want us to be guilty and upset all the time. He wants us to be joyful and relaxed and know that he's in control. and We don't have to worry about it all. And Luther began to, to be that kind of person as he grew in his relationship with God. And he was bolstered by the Bible itself. The Bible was where he got his encouragement from. If you stand up for something... You can, what can you stand up for? Anything you stand up for basically is based on, you know, science keeps changing, everything keeps changing, people's opinions keep changing. What do you take a stand on? It's based on you and your friends and your opinions. It's going to change. The only thing that's unchanging and is permanent and that we know is truth is the Bible itself. So we need, we need to, to take our stands on what the Bible says. And Luther did that, even though it cost him a lot. 
Eventually, they called him to the diet of worms. Isn't that a horrible way to punish somebody, give him a diet of worms? Actually, in German, the diet, the whole idea was the diet was a meeting, okay, that they were going to have from a special official meeting, and again, they can't pronounce W, so it was Worms. They called him to the Diet of Worms. It was a town in Worms, that was the name of the town, and he came to this meeting, and he came in. Now, imagine this, he comes into this town, and they get the most, the most powerful people in the land, all with the army uniforms, everybody's all around him, the army guys all decked out and all the dignitaries and everything. They walk him into the room, he sees seated on the throne uh, the emperor himself, Emperor Charles V. And then he sees a table, and on that table are a bunch of books. Whose books are on that table? His books. And they say, we want you to recant of all everything you've said. Take it back. Imagine that. Let's, let's look at it this way. Take me, for example. I'm a pastor of a small church in a small town in California. Imagine if they took me and they took me to Washington, D.C., and they sat me before a congressional hearing. The president was there, and they put it on live television. And they said something like this. They said, um, Pastor Spear, um, we are a land of tolerance, and we all must agree. We all know that we all must agree with each other lest we offend anybody because we all know what is right, and there's, this is the way we do things. Nobody is supposed to disagree with anybody. And you have stood up against some of the things that we have agreed with. You have proven yourself intolerant, in our opinion. And therefore, therefore, we are upset. In fact, you've been using this book that is only allowed to be used for literary purposes these days. And you are using that book to criticize us. And you've written some things about it. Do you take back what you've written? It's far-fetched, perhaps, but we, we do seem to be going slippery, slowly slippering down that path. It happens again and again throughout history in different nations. People turn away from God in the Bible, and things go down, then they turn back and they go up. And so we see we're starting to go down now, so we have to, to be aware of that. I don't think we have to be uptight about it. I think we just have to be ourselves, and we have to do what's right and uh, love God and love the other people that he's placed in our life. Um, but, but you can see the situation that Luther was in. So Luther had to do something, and at first he said, give me time, and they gave him a day, and he came back the next day, and they kept pressing him. He was trying to give a speech, but they kept pressing him, and finally he just said this, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, God help me, amen. It's pretty bold. So they've tried to negotiate with him more than the next day, and then they say, you go home to Wittenberg. And what they mean by that is, we'll let you leave town, and then we're going to capture you and kill you. He knows that, and everybody inside knows that. So does Frederick. Remember, Frederick is his prince. Frederick is the guy in charge of Wittenberg, and Frederick loves him because he's his most popular um, teacher, and he's been hearing his teachings. So as he leaves, Frederick beats him to the punch, he captures him right away. And he takes him up to his own castle, Wartburg Castle, which is isolated, and for 10 months nobody knows where Luther's at. Luther grows out a big beard and bushy hair, and they call him Knight George. And he stays up in this castle. And then he does something incredible. Over those 10 months, moved by God's spirit, he, he translates, one of the greatest translation accomplishments in history, 
he takes the Greek Bible and he translates it into German. The New Testament in 10 months. And what's really amazing about that is the German language doesn't exist, basically. He creates the German language so that the common people can read it in their own language. He looks to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and he says that you are the priesthood of believers. You are all priests, not me. And you each need to deserve to have your own Bible so you can read it and study it on your own. We have nothing to be afraid of. If we read it on our own, we'll see that we're all going to basically, for the most part, all come to the same place. How can you not? The Bible is pretty straightforward. So everybody deserves this Bible. Isn't that incredible? And helps lay the groundwork for Germany. Later, he and others will collaborate to finish the Bible. And so we have our Bibles today. Much, the fact that you have a Bible is largely due much to the influence of Martin Luther. And that you have different translations that can make it simple and easy for you to understand. You can thank him, among others, that have made that possible. What's powerful is his commitment to God's word to do whatever God's word says, even if it's not what he always wants to do. And the boldness that he has to take stands. Will we ever need to take stands? I think we do, increasingly more so. I was reading an article just last night on uh, one of the big problems with um, Christian campus, you know, um, campus Christian groups on college campuses. If you go to a college campus, there are Christian you know, ministries on that. I came out of a ministry used to be called Campus Crusade for Christ um, that was very influential in my life and my wife's life. Those, camp, those groups are now getting kicked off campuses. Vanderbilt just kicked a group off their campus. They said that they're not tolerant enough. They don't agree with everything that we say. And so they've already begun to do this, so they're actually kicking these groups off of campuses. So we're beginning to see this kind of thing happen more and more. So what do you do when you're in a situation like that? When you're in a college classroom, and I, I had this actually happen to me before where they singled me out for being a Christian in the classroom and asked me a difficult question, and I answered it, and the classroom thought it was a good answer. They all kind of were happy and thanking me afterwards, but I did get my grade knocked down. But you know, what, will you take a stand for what you believe in in a situation like that? If you're the only person in the room? One person says yes. Was that Cana? Awesome. That girl is going to be an evangelist. So very good. Um, but everybody, you know, you know that, these are hard questions. What about at work? Or what about, you know, even like at work where they say, why don't, why don't you just, you know, lie for us in some ways or change the paperwork? And you say, no, I can't do that. Why? Because I, I know God wouldn't want me to do that. You'd lose your job. What if you say, I can't work Sunday mornings because I go to church on Sunday mornings? Now, some jobs, obviously, there are nurses and stuff that you rotate, but, but you say, hey, I want to do... No, you know, what are they going to do? What if you take a stand for Christ in some way, you could lose your job? Well, Jesus is bigger than that. He rose from the dead. He can take care of you. Sometimes it's worth losing your job to take a stand for what's right. Even friendships, losing friendships. Being able to say, hey, I, I, you know, somebody puts down Christianity and be able to say, hey, I, I'm a follower of Christ. I'd love to talk to you about that sometime if you'd like to. And what's amazing is usually, more often than not, you'll make friends out of that situation. Um, but there will be people that are upset with you. But can we, in a nice way, are we prepared to do that, to take stands for Christ? It helps to know our Bibles. And I would encourage you to, to read your Bibles. Um, read them regularly, daily. Memorize a verse a week. It will help you understand what you need to say. When you get in a tough spot, you'll know what to say. Moreover, if the Bible's ever taken away from you, you'll know what it said. 
I remember hearing a stirring testimony by a Vietnam War veteran who was in a bamboo shell for over a year, and the only thing he had left was his memory. Uh, and his memory brought him back to his Bible and to his God. So it's so important uh, that we know these things. Now, the next thing we see is that courage encourages courage. Have you ever noticed that? It's, it's kind of contagious. And a lot of people rallied around him. He didn't want to be the leader of this movement, but he became the leader of a new movement, and he began to encourage others. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he said uh, this, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And so people began to follow his example. And he did a lot of good things, and he made his mistakes, but he ultimately became a great example in Wittenberg. He couldn't go much outside of Wittenberg because any place he went, they'd kill him. He was, he was an out, considered an outlaw. Uh, but he stayed in Wittenberg, and he did a lot of writing and speaking. He had incredible energy. I mean, he was teaching, and he was writing, and he was leading people. One of his best things, though, was his speaking ability. He was an incredible orator. In his prime, he was a big man with a bull neck, and he had a little slightly upturned nose and a double chin and a big girth. I mean, he made up for the years um, that he hadn't eaten, um, did a lot of eating later, enjoyed his food, had brown eyes, reddish hair, and this powerful baritone voice and he just had a great personality and a great sense of humor and a great way to turn a phrase he's one of the most quoted men in history Um, and he began to influence people he started the reformation he became known as the father of the reformation and people began to listen to what he was saying and they started starting churches all over and starting new churches breaking away and trying to follow god interesting thing is luther never wanted to leave the catholic church he always wanted to keep everybody unified And he would never call it the Lutheran Church. It was after he died that it became the Lutheran Church. He called it the evangelical movement. And he chose the word evangelical from the Greek word euangelizomai, which means um, to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Today, we're part of the new evangelical movement with an effort to try to unify the church. That's very interesting. Also, his movement brought about the counter-reformation in the Catholic Church, which really helped the Catholic Church. And today, in recent years, the Catholic Church has actually thanked Martin Luther for his contributions. He didn't live long enough to hear that, but that's kind of interesting as well. But he influenced people like, like um, Albrecht Dürer was a great Renaissance painter, was influenced by Luther, and Lucas Cranach was the illustrator. He used to write cartoons to accompany Luther's writings. And Philip Melanchthon was his best friend. He was a wiry guy with a squint in an eye, and he limped kind of, and he walked just the exact opposite of Luther. And they were great friends. He was his best friend, and he would, he would do all the writing of the details, and Luther, he'd take the little things, and Luther take the big picture stuff. But my, my favorite story of Martin Luther is his getting a wife. If you like romantic comedies, this would be a great ancient romantic comedy. You see, because Luther felt kind of uncomfortable about priests marrying nuns. And he, then he thought about it and he thought, well, the Bible doesn't forbid it, so I guess if they want to, that's a good thing. People should be married. That's wonderful. So he says, go ahead, but I'm never going to get married. But he tried to help out where he could. So one time, there were 12, some say eight nuns, and they were stuck in a cloister. They couldn't get out. So that'd be kind of rough. They wanted to go follow Luther, but nobody would let them out. So they wrote a letter saying, we want to come follow you, but we don't know how to get out. So he had a friend who would deliver herring to that same place. He would, he would t- bring herring to that cloister and pour it out, all the herring. And then when he did so, they had all the nuns jump in the barrels. And then they covered them, and they took the nuns in the barrels back to Martin Luther. And they came out, and boy, did those girls smell. 
but the guys, they didn't have enough women, and so they were more than happy to marry him. And, and they got them all arranged to get married except for one because she was too old. She was the oldest. She was 26 years old. Man. So she's 26 years old, and she was a feisty redhead by the name of Katrina Van Bora, or Catherine Van Bora. They didn't have anybody for, for her. And so he decided to marry her off to this man much older than her, and she said, I won't marry him, but if you ask me, I'll marry you. So Martin thought about it. He was 42, and his parents encouraged him too. They were still alive, and he decided to go ahead and get married to her. He had some reluctance, but he went ahead with it. He wrote this to a friend after the marriage. He said, I have made the angels laugh and the devils weep. And they married, were married for about 20 years, and they had one of the best marriages, most famous marriages in church history. Um, they really loved each other, and it was really a crazy marriage because he wasn't even going to get married at first. But he said, before I was married, the bed had not been made for a whole year and became foul with sweat. But uh, she took care of it. She, she became his, he called her my rib and my Lord Kate. And she straightened out his business affairs and got him a garden and got things working and turned his life around. She said, he said, there is a, uh, a lot to get used to in the first year of marriage. One wakes up in the morning and finds a pair of pigtails on the pillow, which were not there before. Uh, he was very sick because of the way he treated himself. And later in life, he had gout, insomnia, hemorrhoids, constipation, stones, dizziness, and ringing in the ears. And his, his son became a famous physician, and his son said, my mother was amazing. She was a master of herbs, poultices, and massage, and she kept my dad going. He said his favorite book was Galatians, and he called it my Catherine Van Bora, and he said I would not give my Katie for France or Venice. Uh, they had six children whom he called our sixth little heathen. Um, and the sad, their sadness, though, in their lives, too, his 13-year-old, that's probably one of the saddest things in his life, is he was holding his 13-year-old while she was dying. And he said, Magdalena, my little girl, you would like to stay with your father here and you would be glad to go to your father in heaven. Yes, dear father, as God wills, she said, and she died. And at her grave, he said, beloved little Magdalena, you will rise and shine like the stars in the sun. They took the old monastery and they basically turned it into a giant hotel. And they had sick people living there, orphans living there, nuns living there, priests living there, students living there, and their family. Wouldn't you like to hear some of their conversations at the dinner table? Some of the things they talked about? You can. That's my favorite book on Martin Luther. It's called Table Talk. And it's all recorded. It's recorded all the kinds of stuff they talked about back and forth. It's very funny and very insightful and very interesting. Luther would like to bring his guitar to the table at the end. He played a lute guitar and he wrote music and melodies and he had a strong baritone voice. His most famous hymn is a mighty, our mighty, a mighty Fortress is Our God. At the end he says, Let good and goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verses 4 through 7, talks about how the best way to raise your kids is to spend time with them. Quality time is quantity time. And you, when you're walking with them, when you're laying down, when you're getting up, spending time with them. And that was what Luther did the best in some ways, is he just spent time with people. Get to know your kids. Spend time with them. Hang out with them. Get to know the people in your family, your neighbors, your friends. Get involved in the church. Get involved in a smaller group and, and let that become an extended part of your family. And when you find people that have not, are not going to church, that are neighbors, friends, teammates, workmates, pray for them. Befriend them. 
Tell them about the Lord. Invite them to church. A lot of it is just spending time with people, and that's what he did very well. It ends with a sad note, and that is that courage can falter. Martin Luther, late in life, began to falter in his faith. And so not really so much in his faith, but he became more fearful. He began to have some struggles. Um, one of the things he did is he encouraged the government to put down some peasants who were trying to get the church going in another area, and it got violent, and a lot of people were killed. There was a man named Prince Philip of Hesse. He was a great leader. And as a boy, imagine this, as a boy, he was going to be in royalty, so they married him off to a little girl, a little boy and a little girl. He never loved the lady, so he started having affairs. Then he came to know the Lord through Martin Luther. And then he stopped having affairs, but he said, what am I to do? I don't love this lady. I wasn't even really, they married me to her. I didn't have a choice. And Luther didn't know what to do. And in all fairness, a lot of this stuff was new to him, having the Bible and so forth. So what Luther did was kind of strange. He said, well, you really shouldn't divorce her. But in the Old Testament, David and Solomon had different wives. Why don't we do this? Why don't you marry another woman? Don't divorce her, but just don't tell anybody you married another woman. Well, didn't work out so well. It was very confusing and caused all sorts of trouble. And he did some things like that. And Luther had a tendency sometimes to talk before he thought and to write before he thought, and he'd get himself in trouble. Um, he was angry at the end at the Pope and the Emperor. He just kept getting more rude and crude and angry. And then, worst of all, he became anti-Semitic. He'd always been for Jewish people and been, you know, always supported the Jews, but he became upset with the Jewish people because he felt they were causing trouble in Saxony and there was some rumor that one was paid to assassinate him. And he became fearful all of a sudden. And he said, we should take away their, their, um, their, their books and their Bibles. We should burn their synagogues. We should make them agrarian people. And of course, centuries later, this came into the hands of who? In Germany. Adolf Hitler took his writings and used it against him. And so, um, not a good thing. We get kind of depressed when we hear that, don't we? But there's a couple things I want to share with you today in regard to that. Number one, the main thing is his biggest problem was he was a human being. Please be careful not to make a hero out of anybody who speaks, including myself, because we're all messed up. Only Jesus is your real hero. You can learn from everybody, but remember that we all have our flaws. The second thing is he was under incredible pressure that's hard for us to understand. Uh, beyond that was the fact that he was under spiritual oppression. He wrote about the devil and demons tormenting him, and I believe they did. Um, they had a lot of time. There weren't a lot of people that they, there weren't a lot of, you know, Christ followers during those days, and he was the ringleader, so I think they went after him. Uh, he had bad health, as we talked about. And his biggest problem is he had mental, some mental struggles. He had um, problems with anxiety and depression. But he didn't have uh, medicine. He didn't have counselors or people to help him. So we need to be sympathetic that he was just a human being with his own weaknesses. Um, he became a workaholic, though. And he wouldn't listen to those around him. Katie and Philip were telling him to stop. And they were telling him not to be so rude. But he wouldn't stop. I think there's some lessons for us. One is to be honest with our limitations. Beyond this is to be honest. With, you know, I mean, we all have our weaknesses. If you have problems with anxiety and, and depression, see a counselor, get medical help. You know, God can help you through many different sources. If you have problems with alcohol, be honest with it and get some help. If you're working too much, see if there's something you can do to cut things back. If you're not feeling well or you're sick, it's okay not to go to work. It's okay to rest. Take care of yourself. God may be telling you to hold, hold back for the moment. Be honest with what you can and can't do and listen to those people around you. 
because God puts them in your life for a reason. And if they're telling you there's problems, there probably are. Um, confess your sins as well. Regularly talk to God about it. I want to end with this one verse, which is um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. It says, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. The people that tend to fall the most are those that think they've got it all together. That's why it's important on a regular basis to check in uh, with the Lord. Martin Luther, when he was 62, went on a journey to Mansfeld. He was able to travel more at this point. So he went to Mansfeld to settle a dispute from some churches, and he fell ill. Uh, he became very sick, and he'd been having problems most of his last five years. And as he was struggling, he went to Eisenbahn, where he was born, and visited some family and friends there. And his illness became worse. He kept trying to do things. He was writing bantering letters back and forth with Katie, who was urging him to come home. And he died peacefully um, on the morning of February 18, 1546. The great author Thomas Carlyle wrote this about him. He said he was great not as a hewn obelisk, but as an alpine mountain. So simple, honest, spontaneous, not setting out to be great at all, there for another purpose than being great at all. Luther didn't want to be great. He became great just by being honest and just by being himself and doing what God wanted him to do. You may be great, and you're greatest in God's eyes when you're just doing what he wants you to do. As we said, I think last, a couple of weeks ago, God doesn't say, well done, good and successful servant, but well done, good and faithful servant. But what was his purpose that, that drove him? His purpose is, I think, pretty clear. I think it was that um, it was to preserve and proclaim the God-given teachings of the Bible to preserve and proclaim the God-given teaching of the Bible. And we should have that same purpose before us today. So we need to stand with God on this and stand with Martin Luther and stand with the Bible. Will we do that? I encourage you to do so. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, thank you for the example of this man of courage, but thank you especially for the example of your word. Uh, one verse that I, I think I forgot both times is uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, um, where it says that I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. Lord, I pray that we would not be ashamed of you ever um, because you have the power to change lives. And thank you for the lives you've changed in this room and for the lives that you are still changing. Pray that we would all continue to change and grow in our relationship with you or come to know you if we know you not. Pray these things in your name. Amen.